I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 21 as we look at this text that relates to this Palm Sunday. And I want to read uh, verses 1 to 11 as we look at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and reflect on some of what this day means uh, for those people who were there that day and also for us today. So let's read uh, Matthew 21 verses 1 to 11. It says this, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You know, sometimes this day of Palm Sunday can be a bit of a confusing day, Uh, not just because it's supposed to be spring and it's snowing outside, uh, but more than that, it can be a confusing day because of some of the problems that we see in this text and as we think about what proceeds through the rest of the week. There's an article by Chuck Warnock, who points to this problem, and he asks this question, how is it that one day Jesus can enter into Jerusalem on a donkey in this celebration with palm branches and people singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? And it seems like the whole city is worshiping, the whole city is praising God and this Messiah. And then how is it that so much can go so wrong by Friday, that Jesus will find himself betrayed by one of his own disciples, arrested by the high priest guard, accused by a coalition of religious leaders, tried by the Roman governor, and sentenced to die the death of a common criminal, death by crucifixion. How could things go so sideways so quickly? Why this confusing turn of events? There was a Sunday school teacher in the United States who was also getting discouraged at how confused her class of little preschool boys and girls was about Easter and what it meant. And it was Palm Sunday, and this teacher, uh, it was Palm Sunday at the beginning of the Passion Week, and this teacher asked them to say what they remembered about Easter. The first little fellow suggested that Easter was when all the family came to the house and they ate a big turkey and they watched football. And the teacher suggested that maybe he was thinking of American Thanksgiving. So she asked a little girl what she remembered about Easter, and this one said, well, Easter was the day that you come down the stairs and in the morning, and you see all these beautiful presents underneath the tree. And at this point, the teacher was quite discouraged. But after explaining that she was likely thinking about Christmas, she called on a little boy who had put his hand up tentatively in the air, and he was ready to answer. And the teacher perked up as the boy said that Easter was the time that Jesus was crucified on the cross and buried. Finally, she had finally gotten through to at least one little child. But then the boy added, and then he came out of the grave, and if he sees a shadow, we have six more weeks of winter. (laughs) So, it can be a confusing season. 
How is it that something so good on Sunday can go so bad on Friday? But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't confused. He wasn't confused at all about what lie ahead. He knew that all that lay before him was part of God's plan and part of what he had to walk through in faith and obedience to his heavenly Father. Even though the Roman Empire, the Jewish religious leaders, the common people, even some of his own disciples would all turn on him in, turn on him in the course of one week, he knew and understand that this was the path that he needed to walk. So when you think of all those different people, what kind of king were they looking for? And even, I want that question to be kind of reverberating in your mind today. What kind of king are you looking for? So I want to start by looking at these four groups of people that we could maybe reflect on that were there that day and and think about that question. What kind of king were they looking for? First of all, the disciples. Well, maybe it's not so, so, so surprising that there was confusion for the disciples, or confusion in Jerusalem, actually. I mean, even the disciples were confused of what kind of king Jesus was. They had been with Jesus for years, and they still didn't get it. There's a story that precedes this Palm Sunday account in Matthew 21 that gives us a glimpse into this confusion that even the disciples had. And if you look at the chapter just before that, in Matthew 20, verses, verse 20 and following, we see this story that gives a picture of even the confusion of the disciples of who was Jesus. It says this, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, which would be James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it that you want, he asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered, because they were there with their mother. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servants, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this woman, we see later as you read through Scripture, you find that she was one who was very faithful to Jesus. She was actually one who was there at the cross. She was the one who was actually there at the tomb. Her name is Salome, and she is sister to Mary. She's Jesus' aunt. Her sons, James and John, would have been cousins to Jesus. So the request was not surprising in many ways. It's, it's really the way of the world of, of asking for position, authority, and some kind of prestige, maybe. But Jesus gives this surprising answer, and he speaks to and he points to a very different kind of ambition and a very different value that you're called to be the servant of all, even to the point of death. And he talks about a very different kind of king and a very different kind of kingdom. And you know, in human eyes, the practice or the posture of service is not always looked upon with a lot of dignity. But Jesus points to kingdom values that we are to arrange our lives to give ourselves for the benefits of others. He says, I did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. And then not only, not only does he articulate this, but he lives this and walks this out through the course of this week as he walks 
to the cross for us. So that's the disciples. What about, what about the Roman Empire? What kind of king were they looking for? Why was it that Jesus was such a threat to them? I mean, there they were. They were aware of this big day of the Jews. It was the Passover celebration. That's what everybody was gathered in Jerusalem for. And the Roman Empire, they would have known that. But people were flooding into Jerusalem from all the surrounding areas and where people were coming in for this great celebration. But here's the problem. There was some recent history, well, maybe decades earlier, about 80 years earlier, and since then. But 80 years earlier, the Romans had occupied this land by defeating the Jews and deposing their king, and uprisings since then had always been in the air. In fact, the last major uprising was long before Pilate's time. It had been after the death of Herod the Great in 4 BC. And it was one that started not far from Jesus' boyhood home of Nazareth in the city of Sepphoris. But it was quickly snuffed out by the Roman army. The city was destroyed, as was the city of Emmaus. And then from there, the Roman army marched on to Jerusalem, where they used their favorite form of execution, crucifixion, on over 2,000 Jews who were accused of being part of that rebellion, that uprising. And so this was, this was some of the not-so-distant memory that would be in the back of people's minds this Palm Sunday both for the Jews and also for the Roman Empire. That these uprisings that kept coming had to be squashed, that they had to be managed, and you had to crush any kind of revolt. And in fact, thousands of people had been crucified in the preceding years. People remember that. So here they are on this Passover day, and the Romans would know this strange Jewish festival that they allowed, actually, but it they would know that it was actually a festival that celebrated the liberation of the Jews from another empire, the empire of Egypt. So many centuries ago, as the Jewish people celebrated the Passover and this rescue of God's faithfulness on Moses and the people of Israel through the Exodus, that's what they're in the city celebrating that day. You know, some historians argue that there were actually two processions that day, not just not just the one of Jesus on a donkey coming in from the Mount of Olives from the east of Jerusalem, but Roman historical records show that the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, led a procession of Roman cavalry and centurions into the city of Jerusalem from the west. Just to remind the Jews of what happens if there is any idea of a revolt. It would have been standard practice for the Roman governor of a foreign territory such as Judea to be in its capital, Jerusalem, for a religious celebration. Not so different than today, political leaders who go to religious celebrations of different groups of people, and in that time it would have been very common practice too. So here was this Roman ruler who would come to this district and go to the city of Jerusalem to be part of this Jewish celebration that they allowed to happen. And so historians point to this event as well on that day. And so you can imagine if this happened on the same day that there would be one procession from the east of Jesus on a donkey and another from the west of the Roman power and military might just to show what power really looks like. But both of these processions converging on the city on that same day. What a spectacle that would have been. Two kinds of kingdoms, two kinds of kings, different kinds of power. 
So what about the common people? What about the everyday people that would have just been in the crowd that we actually don't know really a lot about them necessarily, but what, would, what kind of king were they looking for? The crowds that day would have been filled with people from all kinds of backgrounds, but because it was Jerusalem and because it was the Passover, we know that the city would have been filled with Jews. It would have been filled with people from all kinds of surrounding areas who would have come from long distances to celebrate this Passover celebration in Jerusalem and to celebrate the expectation of a Messiah. People who would have known this history of God with the people of Israel. People who would have known the story of the Exodus and what this Passover celebration was all about and how Moses went to Pharaoh and challenged him. And here on the last of the ten plagues of the killing of the firstborn, that, that they were told to take the blood of the lamb and wipe it over the doorposts of their homes. And then the angel of death would pass over their home and there would be no death in their homes. And then how God rescued them from Egypt. They would have known this. This is what they came to celebrate. This is why they came to Jerusalem, to remember this event that happened centuries ago that was so ingrained in who they were as a people, so ingrained in their understanding and their family traditions of what they would have taught to their children and their children's children, and passed on year after year, generation after generation, this Passover celebration of rescue, of a God who rescues, of a God who saves. And now here they are centuries later struggling under a new kind of oppression under Roman rule. And they're looking for another rescuer. They're looking for another Messiah. They're looking for another Moses. They're looking for another person who will come as God has promised all through the prophets all those years. And you know, they would have known the words of Zechariah. And Matthew even records it in the text that we read that we quoted today, and maybe they were struggling to know which one of the images actually of Zechariah would reveal the kind of King Jesus that would be there that day. As Jesus came into Jerusalem from Jericho, about 15 miles away, and he came on the road from the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, his descent from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem would have evoked images of Zechariah's prophecy of the Lord fighting against the nations and liberating Jerusalem. We read that in Zechariah 14, verse 3 and 4. It says, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. And on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. Picture of a king coming in power. The Lord liberating his people. But Zechariah paints another picture in his prophetic word. If you look at Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10, we see a picture that is so similar to what we read about this account of how Jesus came into Jerusalem that day. And Zechariah quotes these words and he says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. And he will proclaim peace to the nations and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. These people would have known too that in Old Testament records when kings or rulers were going to another country and they were not going in war but they were going in peace, they would actually ride not on a war horse but they would ride on a donkey. And it was a symbol of peace and a gesture as they would come 
into that land. And so here is how Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And these crowds had their own expectation, I can only imagine, of what kind of king that he would be. Which of these pictures would be the king that they would see today? But a king they saw. We know that because it says how they laid their cloaks down on the road. And that was, at that time, a symbol of submission to a king. When you would take your coat and you would lay it on the road and they would walk over it. It was a submission, an act of submission. And they were doing that throughout that day. So they expected a king. They saw a king. But what kind of king did they see? Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is such a paradox as you go through the story because victory would become through nailing Him on a cross. So this is a mixed crowd with mixed expectations and their own agendas thrust upon Jesus. And even for me, as I've been reflecting on this this week, I thought, man, we, we project our own agendas on Jesus all the time. We're really no different. So the question for us, again, remains, what kind of king do we expect? What kind of king do we see? It seemed that many who called out Hosanna that day were expecting Jesus to bring liberation, just as the kings of ancient Israel and the the Maccabees of more recent times had done during that time. And it's no wonder that Luke records Jesus approaching the city on Jerusalem that day in the account that, that Luke writes about this. And he says how Jesus wept for the people. As Jesus saw them confused and not understanding the kind of king and kingdom that he was all about. Luke 19 verse 42 says this, How I wish, Jesus is saying this, How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But no, it is too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. Jesus understood the confusion in these people that actually should have known, who actually had these prophetic words and should have known and understood the kind of Messiah and the kind of king that he was, but he knew that they had all kinds of different expectations, and he knew that he would disappoint them and it would lead to the cross. But he cries for the people. Fourthly and lastly, what about, what about the Jewish religious leaders? What kind of king were they expecting? What kind of king did they see in Jesus, I wonder? They were suspicious of Jesus, for sure, leading up to this day. I mean, now they were even more nervous, I would imagine. Jesus had a following that threatened to upset their cozy relationship with the Roman rulers. See, these religious leaders, they had free reign of the temple. They had free reign of the religious systems of that day. They were given a lot of latitude in that culture as long as they kind of kept the peace. and The Romans didn't bother them a whole lot, and so... They had things going on in the temple where they were exchanging money and selling things. Um, they were the place where people had their sins forgiven, and so they had all kinds of power. People looked to them for all kinds of answers and held them in high regard, and so they had, a, they had position, they had power, they had privilege, they had honor in this culture. And now here comes this Jesus who threatens all this. And we know, as you read the Gospels, that Jesus had his harshest words for the religious rulers. He challenged them on so many fronts, on so many occasions. The scribes, the chief priest and his priests, the ruling council of the Sanhedrin, and all the religious parties of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were part of that Sanhedrin, they all 
had the possibility of losing the power and the prestige that they had if the temple system was destroyed and forgiveness was no longer found there. We know that Jesus performed miracles and proclaimed that the temple would be destroyed. In fact, he said, I am the temple, and on the third day it will be lifted up. And they're trying to understand, what does that mean? What are the implications for us? What happens to our temple system? Their whole way of living and being and making a living was threatened on that day. Jesus chases out the money changers and he declares it a house of prayer. He was definitely a threat to the Jewish religious leaders. And here's the interesting thing. These different groups of people, of religious leaders, who never agreed on anything, it seemed, agree that Jesus is going to attract the attention of the Roman Empire, especially now during the Passover. And Rome will come down hard and fast on the entire people of Israel. So later that same week, they would call out along with the crowds, crucify him, crucify him. Because you see, crucifixion would be the one form of capital punishment that would show the Romans that they are completely loyal. And hopefully they'd be able to retain their power and their privilege. You know, Matthew's account of this Palm Sunday event, of this entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and all that it means in the midst of these people's minds and the chaotic whatever was going on in that day was a fulfillment of so many prophetic words, of so many prophecies, of so many centuries before. It was the fulfillment of so much that he fulfilled the anticipated Messiah of prophet, priest, and king. That Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these things, of teacher, sin-bearer, and ruler. That Jesus' dramatic entry into Jerusalem brings these three streams together in complete fulfillment. But he did so in a way that so many just didn't expect. Even the religious rulers who knew and understood this. Because you see, the Old Testament told that they, they came to understand that these messianic roles of prophet, priest, and king were, were understood in being filled by different people, by separate individuals. They couldn't get their mind around probably this idea that one person could actually fulfill all of these prophetic images. It would have to truly be an extraordinary person more than anyone could conceive or hope for. And yet here is this Jesus, this Messiah who fulfills all the hopes for humanity and offers an entirely new way of living for them and for us. One commentator quotes, and he says it this way, Here the paradigm of power is turned upside down, so that the apparent weakness of a human on a cross is the greatest display of power that the world has ever known. That is an upside-down kingdom. That is a different kind of king. Warnock, at the end of his article, where he reflects on these two processions coming into the city that day, again points us to that unique watershed day, and he asks some really important questions that I want to leave us with today. People would have to choose between two processions and two very different kinds of kings and kingdoms. And if you had been in Jerusalem that day, which one would you have followed? Which one would have got your attention? Which one would have been the, the kind of king that you were expecting? You know, they each brought their own agendas to Jesus, trying to form him into their own image. And as I said earlier, we do the same thing too. More than we'd like to admit, we bring our own agendas that reflect a particular 
type of king in our making. The two processions could not be more different in the message they conveyed. Pilate, leading Roman centurions, asserts the power and the might of the Roman Empire, which crushes all who oppose it. And Jesus, riding in on a young donkey, embodies the peace and tranquility that the shalom of God brings to his people. Those who watch that day will make a choice. They will either serve the God of this world and of might and power, or they will choose to serve the king of a very different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God. So this is a question. This is a choice for each and every one of us every day. Will we choose the power and the might of this world, or will we choose love and self-sacrifice for the sake of others? Will we choose the way things are done in the world or the way things that or the way God intends them to be? There are two processions, two theologies, two choices. Which would you choose? What kind of king do you expect? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your sacrificial love and that you are a God whose extravagant love leads you to come to this earth and to die for our sake. And Lord, we live in a world where we see that we clamor for so much when it comes to power and prestige and we see leaders of different kinds doing that in different ways and we even can sometimes sense it welling up inside of us. And Lord, we just confess that we need to see you as the one true king who came as the Lamb of God. And so Lord, I don't know what all the applications are for each one of us here today, but we just confess that we way too often make you in our own image. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you for who you truly are and that you would help us to see you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That as we enter into this holy week, that we would understand in a new way what you've done for us and the love that you have for us and the implications of that for us and for the world. Lord, help us to be people of your peace, this gospel of incredible peace. Help us to live out of that in that identity and to worship you as the one true king. So Lord, today we just give you praise and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.